I hope you brought a pen with you this morning and you got a bulletin so you can take notes or you have paper so you can take notes because we are going to need to do that this morning. This is not going to be a typical sermon and you'll find out what that means in a moment. Well, the year was 1928. Three Australian Christian preachers stepped off of a cargo ship into the jungles of Malaysia. And the group was led by a guy named Hudson Southwell. He was a young Baptist minister. They hiked into the interior praying that they could reach a certain group of people with the gospel. And those people were called the Lung Bawang people. The Lung Bawang people were animists. Basically, they worshipped spirits. They sacrificed their children to these spirit demonic gods. They used to be headhunters, but had basically given that up because they had given themselves over to alcohol and to drugs. The situation in their villages was devastating. Women and children were starving because the men were stoned and drunk and basically almost every day of the year the men were just laying around. They lived in filthy, disease-infested huts Anthropologists at that time predicted their people group would soon go extinct. But then, God intervened and sent Hudson Southwell and those two other men to preach the gospel to them. And most of those people came to Christ. And life immediately and dramatically changed. The, the men who were drunk, gave up their alcohol. They started working to provide for their families. The gospel came in their hearts. They received the gospel. They were saved by the new birth. And they began to do what God had called them to do. And for those men, it was to take care of their families. And for the whole community, that was to love and take care of one another. They began good hygiene habits, they learned to read, and today, if you were to go to that people group, you would see a thriving group of people. You wouldn't even know that at one time, they were almost about to go extinct. And what happened in that situation? Why did that happen? Why was there such a change? Well, number one, it was the work of God in their hearts to make them new creatures. But God sent Hudson and two other men to go preach the gospel to them. But there were also other people. Who are those other people? Well, before they left, they established a missions organization to help fund this. There was a pastor who oversaw that. And there were many churches that supported this mission endeavor. In other words, those people, the unnamed people, were many of those Christians in the churches in Australia. You know, when you support gospel workers in our community or overseas 
When we do that as Lighthouse, sometimes we think about those gospel workers are, are the ones who are doing the work. But we are the ones who are to support and send them to do the work. We support missionaries in Indonesia, the Philippines, Honduras, Haiti, Africa, in our own community, the Community Pregnancy Center. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Ironwood and South America. And the point is, is that we have many places that we fund and we support. And they, they are able to reach places that we could never reach as a local church. But we are a part of that gospel work. Those ministries are able to reach souls that we can't because we give... We give to meet gospel needs in worship of Christ. And we've been talking about this for the past two weeks, that those who are graced by God must faithfully give through the local church to meet gospel needs in worship of Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4 teaches. And so if you would, if you haven't already, please turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. And I'm not going to go through this whole passage again, but just in review, last week we saw that the purpose of giving and the offering on a regular basis is to meet gospel needs in worship of Christ. That's in verses 1 and 2. And then verse 2, we see the habit of giving, that we are to give faithfully and freely as a weekly Sunday pattern. And then we briefly touched on this last point, and that is the administration of giving. That's in verses 3 and 4, that we are to give to and through the local church under the stewardship of biblical elders. And what's interesting about this passage is that we see an example in a real church, the church in Corinth, of, of a church that gave to support gospel needs or to meet gospel needs in worship of Christ, and also, we see how they administrated those funds. So I want to touch on that this morning. But also, there's really two questions that came up in my mind as I considered this passage. And I honestly, I planned on moving on to the next couple verses, verses 5 through 9. But the Holy Spirit kept bringing me back to this passage and really to two questions. And that is, how should a local church administrate the funds collected? That's a really important question. It's administrative in some sense, but it's actually important to God, and it should be important to us. And the next question is, how should you individually, and how should we corporately, as a local church, care for the needy? And that's what they were doing. They were sending funds to Jerusalem to care for those Christians who are in poverty. So what does that look like for us? So the title of the sermon here this morning is Carefully care for gospel needs. Carefully care for gospel needs. And so I want to really answer both of these questions this morning. This is not a typical expositional sermon. And if you are aspiring to be a preacher, please do not follow this pattern. But I think it can be helpful for us as we just need to consider these two questions here this morning. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. 
And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So the first question here is this, how should a local church administrate the funds collected? And here's the answer, and that is that the offerings that the church collects, those funds are to be administrated under the stewardship of biblical elders assisted by biblical servant leaders, or we call those deacons. And the church the, uh, the scripture calls on us as a church to have two offices that serve the church. Elders, that's one office, and the other is the office of deacons. Elders lead the church by overseeing the organization and, and administration of the discipleship of the church. So the elders are to lead the church by overseeing the administration, application, and organization of the discipleship of the church. Remember, a church is a body of believers, a group of believers who are in covenant with one another, and it's a covenant of discipleship. And so the elders lead that. And then there, there are deacons who are servant leaders, and they assist the elders by providing logistical and material support for the discipleship work of the local church. And so for the church in Corinth, they would have had elders, and they would have had deacons, and what you see in the text here is Paul, as an elder in the churches, he is operating in a way of administration. He's serving using his gift of administration. In fact, notice that in verse number one. Notice Paul organized the whole endeavor. Verse one, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed. And then notice verse three, when I arrive, I will send, Paul says. Verse four, they that group that are going to go to Jerusalem, they will accompany me. So Paul was doing this work, this ministry work of administration. And actually, this is one of the qualifications and roles of an elder, of a pastor, of a pastor teacher. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 give this qualification. It's a very important aspect of, of pastoral ministry. That there must be the ability to faithfully administrate. Scripture says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So that word manage there is that idea of administration. You rule over, you oversee, you have leadership in and how do you know if an elder will be a faithful steward in the church? What does he say in that text of scripture? Well, look at how he administrates, how he manages his family. Notice how he disciples his family. Notice how he, he uh, budgets his funds. Does he use them wisely? And this is why it's important for us to consider these things when we consider if someone should be an elder in the church. And it doesn't mean that families uh, of the pastor have to be, or pastors and elders have to be perfect. I hope not, otherwise we wouldn't have any elders or pastors in the church. It just means that generally they are faithful with what God has given to them. Now go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8. 
So in 1 Corinthians 16, we saw Paul is the one who's administrating this. In 2 Corinthians 8, we see that Paul appoints a pastor, an elder named Titus. And Titus was, uh, Paul delegated the responsibilities of this collection and then sending this gift to Titus. Titus was a Gentile. Paul probably led him to Christ. Definitely he discipled him. Titus served in pastoral roles in many churches. And at some point between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Timothy went and ministered into this church in Corinth. Notice 2 Corinthians 8, look at verse number 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So now Titus has this responsibility delegated to him. The act of grace is the the gift that's going to be given to Jerusalem. Notice, we're going to skip a couple verses. Verse 16, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. So Titus had this pastoral care over these believers in some way. We don't really know what that looked like, but definitely there was a pastoral role that he had. Skip to verse 18. With him, it's Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So now there's another believer, and we don't know who this person is, but there's another believer who was gifted to preach the gospel And notice, he's going to be the one also with Titus to go down to Jerusalem to take this gift. Verse 19. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches, plural, those are local churches, to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. So notice this. This is interesting. There's a group of churches that worked together to minister to the saints in Jerusalem. And they elected, they voted in some way to have this one man, and Titus and Paul as well, but this one man to represent them down there. So it's almost like they formed a parachurch organization. Now sometimes people ask me the question, is it? Is it okay that there are parachurch organizations that are doing gospel work? And the answer is yes, if it's a biblical parachurch organization. What's a biblical parachurch organization? By parachurch, I'm talking about organizations that partner with local churches. They are funded by local churches and Christians to support and spread the gospel in ways the local church can't. And what's very important in that is local church. They're partnering with the local church. They're not some entity on TBN out there asking for your money if you put your hand on the screen. Okay? They're partnering with local churches. There's accountability through the local churches. Today we have Melissa, and you're not going to come up right now, but today we have Melissa from the Simi Valley Community Pregnancy Clinic. And she is a part and she leads a biblical parachurch organization. The Community Pregnancy Center ministers to mothers who may have 
unexpected or for some maybe even unwanted pregnancies. And their work is to rescue those babies, to, to minister to those mothers, and yes, even to the fathers. And, and they're doing a work that is there to rescue lives, to, to help those individuals through counseling and through information, but also their desire is to have an opportunity to give the gospel if God leads in that way. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to volunteer in a community pregnancy, and that one was called Center, and I did not know what I was getting myself into. It was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I got roped into it by some friends, and I went down there, and we went through the training videos. That was a shock. I learned things I never knew about. But what's interesting is I'm finding these, these ladies, and sometimes even guys, that would come in there with their girlfriends, and they were my age. They were college age. And they needed some help. They were in a hopeless, in their mind, desperate situation. But they needed Christ. It was a great opportunity. It was an opportunity that local churches couldn't just do on their own. And here's a question for you. We support them. How did that CPC in Simi Valley Community Pregnancy Clinic, how did it all come about? Well, I talked to Claire Gallagher this past week. 40 years ago, four couples in a local church in Simi were praying about how they could minister to these young mothers and reach them for Christ. One of them was a lady named Claire Gallagher. She was a member of our church for many, many years. Uh, Claire and Carrie moved to Pennsylvania in, 20, I think, 2022. And they had a, a phone line. They just got a phone line that they could, ladies or girls could call that were pregnant. They would meet at a coffee shop. Claire said she met with Jenny Rowe. Some of you remember Jenny Rowe. She was a member of our church for many years and moved in 2018 to Virginia. But she met with an expected, a mother who was expecting a child, Jenny Rowe, and she encouraged Jenny to save her child and to follow Christ. And she did. In fact, like I said, Jenny became a member of our church and served here, and her children were ministered to here. What a wonderful blessing that was. And then eventually other um, people got on board with it, and they started reaching out to other churches, and churches in Simi came together to start up this parachurch organization to be able to reach these mothers and their boyfriends for Christ. And isn't that a wonderful thing? I think it's what you see here in this text of scripture. It's like not a community pregnancy center, but I'm saying what you see here is churches coming together to meet a need. And I think it's a biblical model here for us. In fact, turn over to Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2 because I want you to see this in not only the context of 20 years after Pentecost, but actually right after Pentecost at the birth of the church, you see the church giving to meet gospel needs and you see them doing that under the stewardship of the elders, but also assisted by deacons. Now, how many deacons went down with them to Jerusalem to pass that gift off? We don't know, but I imagine there were probably some men that did that. But in Acts chapter 2 through really chapter 6, we see this model of giving, administration, and of assisting. Look at Acts 2 verse 41. Those who received the word, that's the word preached, were baptized, 
And they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. And I believe this is added to the membership of the church. Remember, a church is a a group of Christians who are in covenant with one another, a covenant of discipleship. And so that's what you see here in verse 42. You see that lived out. And they, that's that group, that 3,000 who are now in this covenant of discipleship, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, in the prayers. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were ministering to one another, using their gifts, even financially giving to care for each other's needs. Verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So what did that look like? They were selling their proceeds and they were doing what with it? Well, we look in the next, in chapter 4, and we see they were taking that and they were putting it at the feet of the apostles who were the elders of the church of Jerusalem. And where were these funds going to? Like, who was, who were the needy in this passage? Well, they were believers. This wasn't a fund to say, let's just pass out food and and money or whatever else to people in the community. This was primarily for those who were in the church, and it was for those who were needy. And when we're talking about needy, what are we talking about? This isn't like, you know, my, my donkey's getting a little worn. Can the church help me out to get an upgrade? You know, a newer donkey. No, this, this is people who, who lost their jobs, and they have no income. These are people who, who their family rejected them, and now they're out on their own. These are people who they're being persecuted and their husband's thrown in prison because he's a Christian now and their family is destitute at home and have nothing to eat. These are the needy people they're talking about. And the church said, we'll sell it, we'll give it, and we'll minister in this way. If I go to Acts chapter 4 and notice this happening, you can see this in real life in Acts 4, Acts 4.33. And with great the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Oh, notice that right there. The grace of God was in their heart. And so what's the next thing they do? If God's grace is truly in your heart, what happens? Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. In other words, people full of grace are people who give For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. I mean, they're not just scraping off the top 10%. They're like, we're selling this whole land. They brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had need. So the apostles who were functioning as the elders of the church in Jerusalem, they received the funds, they administrated the funds. And then go to Acts chapter 6 verse 1. Because here what you'll see is you'll see what I believe are the elected office, the elected office of deacon, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Acts 6, 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Notice verse 3. Therefore, brothers, the apostles said, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so here you have men who are assisting the elders in distributing the the help to these widows and to those who had need. 
Okay, this might seem kind of boring. You're like, okay, yeah, we have deacons and we have elders in our church. But I think this is important for us to consider. Number one, so you know the Bible teaches this. But also because we should pray for our elders and our deacons. This is the role they should function in. So we should pray that they would have integrity. That they would remain full of the Holy Spirit. That they would have a good reputation, but also they would faithfully minister in the way that God has called them. And also we should pray that God would give us more deacons to serve in this way, more elders. In fact, it could be you're a man out there and you maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I want to do that. But maybe God would want you to do that. Maybe you should consider if God would want you to serve as a deacon or maybe even someday as an elder. And they were needy people in the church. So the next question I want to really ask is, how should you individually, and then how should we together as a local church care for the needy? So I just want to go through some principles from the scripture to think about. And this is the time where it's not really expositional, it's topical. So we're just going to go through some different verses here to consider. But number one, we should treat all people with dignity. We should treat all people with dignity, poor or rich, important, not important, whether it's the baby in the womb or the old man in hospice care, whether it's the governor of California or the candidate that you really like, we should treat people with, with dignity because all people are made in the image of God. And that's what the scripture says. Rich and poor have this in common, the Lord is the maker of them all. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his neighbor. I mean, think about a picture that someone has. And if you were to take that picture and throw it on the ground and stomp on it, it would demonstrate how you feel about that person. There's no picture of God, okay? We're not, there's no picture. God's a spirit. However, we are made in his image. When we speak against people, when we see that person that is of maybe in our minds are vile per, a person and we roll our eyes at them or we treat them in a way that is unkind, we are not honoring them in the way that God wants us to. And ultimately, that means we're not honoring the Lord. And so we should treat all people with dignity. We also should show the compassion of Christ to the needy. This is the heart of Christ. Christ, the Bible says in Matthew 9, 35 through 36, the Bible says Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I mean, you, you've heard that a lot, right? But just, can you just let that settle in? That he saw people and he loved them. And why is that? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as People who were tired, living a sinful life, it's weary. He saw people who were needy. He saw people with infirmities, with brokenness, and his heart was moved. His heart was moved for their plight, but his heart was moved because they needed something. They needed a shepherd, and he's the shepherd. And so what's his call? He says, pray that God would send out laborers to tell them the good news of the gospel. Do our hearts burn within us with compassion when we see people, especially those who are needy? I was yesterday with my family at 
sky zone in Thousand Oaks on a Saturday. There were a lot of children jumping around. And Thousand Oaks, pretty well-to-do people. But it was interesting, as I, as I looked around, I was watching two of our kids jump, and I was with Dana, and I was looking, and I just, you know, you just look at those people, and I just think to myself, all these kids, all these families, like, how do you reach them for Christ? You ever think about that? You like, look at these people, and you're like, I've, I was like, I wonder if I could just, like, right now, to, like, stop the music that's really annoying, and get up and just preach to them, or how could I get them to hear the gospel? You know, it's, and I think that's the heart. And I know many of you have the heart. Like you see people and you're like, how do we get Christ to them? Especially for those people who are weak and needy and destitute. Jesus had this heart. I mean, this, the heart of compassion looked like Jesus going up to a leper who, who probably hadn't been touched in maybe months or years. And he touched them and he healed them and he shared the good news with them. This is Jesus with his heart of compassion to go to Samaria and talk to a woman who's Samaritan, a Samaritan, and she's an outcast. And the disciples are like, why are you talking to her? Like, she's not one of those ones we talk to. And he didn't just talk to her. He gave her the gospel. That's the heart of compassion. He sees 4,000 people. He's teaching them. And the heart of compassion, he says, I'm not willing to send them away hungry. Like, that's a physical need they have. I don't want them to faint. He has this love for people. And then he also gave them the word. And why would we have a heart like this? Like, where does that come from? Deuteronomy 10, we see this all the way back in the law. The Bible says that God executes justice for the fatherless. This is the heart of God. For the widows... For the, the, he loves the sojourner. Oh no, he just loves the covenant people of God. He loves the sojourner is what it says. Giving him food and clothing. So what are you supposed to do? Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So, so the reason they were to love the outcasts is because they were once outcasts. They were once in Egypt. They were the outcasts. They were the slaves. And God says, remember that. Remember how you wished you were loved? Love people in that way. And where does that come from? Because that's how I love you. See, God doesn't choose the wise. God doesn't choose the amazing. God doesn't choose the exalted. God chooses the humble. He chooses the weak. He chooses those who have nothing to offer him. And so we should love like Christ loves. We should have this compassion. This is what true religion is. This is what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. When is the last time that you visited a widow? Or someone who's needy? In that way. Someone who's lonely. We have three ladies in our church who you'll never meet because they can't come to church. Because we call them shut-ins. In other words, they're not physically able to come. Have you considered like going by and visiting them? We have other people in the church who are older and they would love to see someone during the week. One of the things that we have done with our children since they were toddlers is go visit older people in the church and we did this in South Carolina and 
as well out here as well. You know what? If your kids are healthy, no snot coming down. If you can teach them not to touch the glass in the room, keep their hands to themselves, they just, like older people love to see those children. I can remember when, when Claire Gallagher, or when Carrie Gallagher's mother was living down the street here, and we'd go down, and, and our kids would, would see her, and she passed away, went to glory. I can think of just a list of people that we were able to, as a family, just continually minister to. I think my kids have probably been to more funerals than most people because of that. Not because their kids are their pastor's kids, but because we went, we got to know those people, became friends with them. And then we went to their funerals. And I'm going to tell you, there's nothing better than seeing a seven, eight, nine-year-old who has been loved on by an older person because you intentionally went to their house and they go to that funeral and they believe that person's in heaven. I think about Charlene Kovacs, a lady in South Carolina. We administered with her in the public school in the Good News Club. Our kids got to know her. She got cancer. She was dying. She was an older lady and we would go visit her. And that, that I can remember her when she was dying, and I can remember at her funeral. And it's, it's a blessing, not just for that person. You realize it's a blessing for you. It's a blessing. Okay, we're gone on that one for a long time. That was not intended to go that long. But the idea is, is that we, we have compassion on people. It's not just about, like, here's five bucks, right? It's like, here's sometimes the most valuable thing is our time. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Some churches have as their stated goal to eliminate poverty. Think about that. What do you think about that? Our mission as a church is to eliminate poverty. Well, that's not a biblical mission for a church. And why is that? Well, first of all, because Jesus said the poor are always going to be with you. In other words, you're never going to eliminate poverty, okay? But also, that's not the reason why we minister to people. He says, Jesus says that you're always going to have the poor with you, but yet you, you'd still, you still do good to those who are needy. Why is that? Because that's who we are. We love because the love of Christ is within us. And, and I say this because if your goal is to eliminate poverty, it's never going to happen, right? But you shouldn't do it just for that reason. You should do it because that's what God's called you to do. God's called you to do good. God's called you to love. And therefore, no matter what the end result is, that's what we do. And then this last one is, not this last one, but this next one is very important. We should discern the reasons and the biblical response. This is such an important one. If you say the word needy in America are poor, people automatically go to homeless. Especially out here in California. 70 some, some 70,000 homeless people in Los Angeles. And most people think of helping the homeless as giving them money or giving them food, giving them government assistance. But let me counsel us this morning to not condition our mind to think like the world thinks. Like some of us think that way because that's what the world, the culture, has conditioned us to think. We think caring for people is throwing money at them. That's the American way. We throw money to people overseas. I mean, the government does that. But we throw money at people. And are we such a loving group of people? Well, not necessarily. You might be giving in that way and unknowingly participating in someone's sin or supporting their sins. 
Simply giving to the poor without discerning the reasons for poverty is foolishness. Assuming one's only problem is a lack of resources is not wise. The cause of poverty is more than just a lack of food and money and housing. The real problem might be substance abuse or mental problems or even a lack of personal character. And most importantly, we realize the greatest need a person has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you can kill the body, the body might die, but you should fear the one who has rule over the body and the soul. And so we consider that. So let's, let's just discern some things. Let's discern what are the reasons why a person may become impoverished or they are needy. Let's remember this, that if you're in this room and you're like, yeah, I'm really poor, I'm really impoverished, would you please just compare yourself with the rest of the world? In other words, if you had a meal this week and if you had a bed to sleep in, compared to the rest of the world, most, the majority of the world, you're not poor, okay? So we are like kings and queens in America. And so not, not to say there's not needs in America. I'm just saying it's, it's good to keep that in perspective. But why might one be desperately needy? Well, number one, it's, it's because of providential circumstances, right? The, the famine in Jerusalem was a providential circumstance. A, a, a woman who has her husband die, now she's a widow and she, widow and she can't provide for herself. It's a providential circumstance, Proverbs 13, 23, a poor man's field may produce abundant food. So there you go. He's, 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 he has plenty, but injustice sweeps it away. I mean, injustice. Someone comes and robs you. Someone drains your bank account, steals your identity. Like, you can't help that. You didn't choose to do that. It was a providential circumstance. And all of us know of those type of people who have been in those or are in those. I think about ministry we support, Connect to Ministries in Haiti. Listen to these statistics. Half of those who live in Haiti are in poverty. 25% are in extreme poverty. So that means that 75% of the population live on $2 a day or less. And to get some perspective here, I read an article that said that if you were going to buy a, gas of ga- ga- uh, a gallon of gasoline... It's $20 on the black market. So it's not like all the prices are lower, you know. It's definitely more than here. A Haitian proverb says this, really bad is not yet dead. Because in Haiti, what they do, parents sadly do, is when they can't provide for their family, sometimes they sell their other children into sex slavery so they can provide for their other kids. That's how desperate those people are. There's a providential circumstances. Connect to ministry is down there and they're meeting some physical needs. They have a, a clinic and they feed these kids. They rescue some children and they're able to rescue them, give them a home, give them a bed, give them a skill of life and then give them the gospel. And so praise God for that ministry and what they're doing. But the, the point is though, no one decides to be born in Haiti. Right? That's a providential circumstance. In 1 Samuel, let's remember this. 1 Samuel 2, 5-7 through 7 says, The Lord brings death. He makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. God is sovereign over all, and that includes poverty. And that doesn't mean God is apathetic to someone suffering. No, God cares. God loves 
God hears the cry of those who are desperate. And so the question then comes up, why would God allow that in a place like Haiti? Why would God allow that? Why would God put a person in Haiti in that impoverished situation? And there are many reasons, but one of the most important is that they're in a place like no one else to look up and trust in the Lord. See, the poor in Haiti, they have a huge advantage, advantage over us. And that is, they know they need help. I'm not just talking about a, a bagel. I'm, they know they need God. Like, we're, like, we're like drowned out by our TVs and by our phones. And we walk around and we can go through a whole day and not even think about God. But when you don't have food in your belly, and when you don't know if you're going to die or you don't know what's going to happen to your kids, you're like, I need help. And when someone says, I have the creator of the universe and I have his news for you. It's good news. He can save you. It's like, I need something and I need to be saved. And so that doesn't mean that we don't have compassion on those people. It means we, we kind of put in perspective that they have a perspective that we should envy in that way, in, in a godly way. And that is that they know they need the Lord. So one may be needy because they're in a providential circumstance. One may be needy because they have a soul that is governed by lust. Here's some verses. I'm going to throw them up here. You're going to have to write them down quickly if you want to write them down. Proverbs 6, 10 through 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. There are people who go through life and think, oh, it's all going to work out. You might be 18, 19, 20, or 26, and you're like, oh, life is going to work out. I can just play my video games and live in my parents' basement. Everything's going to be fine. And it's like a robber's going to come and tell you, poor guy, you lost. <laughs> and I've met men mostly in their 40s, and it's like they're 40-something, and they're going, maybe I should figure my life out right now. I don't have anything. What happened? You're a lazy bum. About Proverbs 20, 13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. How about Proverbs 10, 4. A, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Some people's problem is they actually have a, a bad work ethic. Yeah, they have a job, but they're always trying to cut the corners, and that's why they keep getting fired, or that's why they only work a low-level job, because they can't ever work hard enough to get anywhere. And some people are poor because they're drunkards and gluttons. Drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Proverbs 23, 21. What do lazy people need? What do drunks need? Well, they need to get out of poverty. They need to get to work. But most importantly, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they need a, they need a heart change. They, they need the Holy Spirit to to make them a new creation. And that's like we talked about at the very beginning with the Lung, the Lun Bawang people. That's what God did in their lives. And then some people, they are needed because of foolish financial decisions. You have Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Some people are poor because they don't listen to counsel, wise counsel. 
They don't listen to Dave Ramsey. No, just kidding. But, but they don't listen to like wise counsel or, or they don't heed wise, wise counsel. And so they are you know, 30 years old. They have $250,000 of debt and they're working a, a job that only pays like $40,000. And they're like, I can't get anywhere in life. Maybe you shouldn't have gotten a degree and been an influencer. You know, I actually saw that this week. There's actually a real degree you can get from a university of an influencer. Like, either you have it or you don't, right? I mean, really, you got to go pay like $250,000 to be an influencer. Probably should have invested in a different way. I saw, I saw another degree that said from the University of the Redlands, University of Redlands, you can get a degree in still trying to figure out who I am. Now, it's a, according to article, that's a real degree. Still trying to figure out who I am. Probably should have done that before you got to college and you decided to pay all that money. But, but the point is, is that people can, can, can spend money on things just because they think they can and maybe it's not wise and therefore they find themselves in poverty. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only into poverty. So there's people who just keep changing their decisions and their minds and they can't make up their minds. And this is what I've heard some people in this generation say that, you know, they just, they just can't ever make up their mind. That's just a difficult time, a difficult thing for this generation. And that's what this proverb is saying. Like, figure out what you're going to do, put your mind to it and get to work. That's what this proverb is saying. Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works his, his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Or how about, I didn't put this one up here, but Proverbs 28, 19. The one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. Can I just tell you this? There's so many men that I've met who are going home and they play video games all the time. That's chasing your fantasies, right? And some of those men find themselves in poverty. And the scripture is saying here, stop chasing fantasies. <laughs> Actually, look at life realistically. So what are you to do? What do you do with, with a person who faces these type of needy situation because of choices they're making? Well, 2 Thessalonians, Paul speaks to this in chapter 3. And this is actually to the church. And there, there, there were men, I imagine there are men, there are people in the church who were lazy. They weren't working. And so what, what are you supposed to do with those people? In other words, they are able to work and they choose not to. Is the church just to pass out things to them? Well, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living, get a job, he's saying here. So sometimes the stewardship of, of, of talking to a person about what's going on in their life isn't just saying, oh, you don't have anything, here's something, it's, okay, you need to get a job. But here we're talking to Christians in the church, right? He's talking to believers in the church. What do you need to do with believers in the church? He's saying, believers, help other believers and how you help them, say to them, you're not going to get anything from the church until you get a job. And that's what he's saying here. Ultimately, even that passage he's speaking about, if it gets, could be, it comes to a place where you actually even have to remove that person from the membership of the church. God's gift of grace to us is actually the ability, the responsibility to work. 
Work is not a curse. Work is a blessing from God. And therefore, that's what we are to do, provide for our family, so we can also share with others who have needs. It's one of the reasons I really like, I love, I should say, Connect Two Ministries in Haiti. It's one of the reasons we're starting to support Good Samaritan Mission in Honduras, because they're there, yes, they're meeting physical needs in very poor places, They're also equipping men and women and children to have skills to provide for themselves so they can come out of poverty. But most importantly, above all else, they're giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so praise God for that. One last one, just thinking about discernment. And I'm not going to go through this one, but think about 1 Timothy 5. Because sometimes you might think about, well, this is a person in the church and they need help. And 1 Timothy 5 talks about widows. And in 1 Timothy 5, he basically says... Many widows are not going to receive help from the church. There's qualifications for widows who receive help from the church. They have to be 60 years of age. They have to be a believer. They have to be a believer who's serving. They have to be a believer who's serving other people. They have to be a believer who's who's also um, doesn't have any children, doesn't have any grandchildren, has no family that can care for them. So, so the point is, sometimes it's a question, it's like someone comes and says, hey, can, can the church help take care of this person? And one of the questions I ask is, well, who are the family that's involved in this? And if there are family members involved, then those family members should get involved. And so there's discernment we need as we talk to people and discern what is the biblical response, what is the proper response? And, and the truth is, there's not like a, a clean-cut answer for everything. We need to pray that God would give us discernment and sometimes get counsel from other people. And then this is another one that maybe you're never really thought about. But as you consider how you can help those who are needy, the scripture actually instructs us to prioritize care for your local church first, then for other saints outside of the local church, and then for unbelievers. We're just going to zip through these verses. Romans 12, 10. Love one another. It's what God's called us to do. With brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So he's speaking to this, this church in Rome, and he's saying, You as a church are to love one another. Hebrews 6:10, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving of the saints. He's talking about those who are serving their church and loving their church. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so there's, there should be this commitment that you have. And when you think about how can I help someone, look around these people that you've made a covenant of discipleship with. How can I help this young mother? How can I help this older person? Like who is someone who's needy in the church? How can I meet their needs? How can we love them in that way? And then we should look outside and say, what are the other saints or who are the other saints that we can minister to and we can help? Scripture says, this we know, uh, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And let me just pause and say this. There could be a person in here, and you realize that God is putting within your heart to lay down your life, potentially, for other brothers and sisters in Christ, and maybe be a missionary and go give the gospel to people who don't know Christ. But the point is that we should love people in this way. And and the Bible says, but if anyone has this world's goods and see his brother is in need. And notice your, your, your direction of attention is to the brother and sister in Christ. Yet closes his heart against him. How should or how does God's love abide in him? This passage, John 3, 1 
5 through 8 speaks about how we faithfully give to those. And notice that these are brothers and they're also strangers. And he says, therefore, we ought to support people like this. These are these brothers that came. And so he's talking about those outside of the local church. Let's support them as they go spread the gospel of truth. And then the last verse we'll talk about is Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So it's not just an exclusive club. The, the love that we show, the compassion we show should extend not just to our church, not just beyond our church, but to all those people that we have an opportunity to show love to. And especially, come back to your local church, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then the last one, as we go, we are to minister mercy with good deeds and the good news. It's not one or the other. It's not either or, it's both. We minister mercy with good deeds and with the gospel. And so someone's sick in our church and you're going to give them a meal, that's a good deed. You should do that. Let me encourage you. Give them a note. Write a Bible verse on there. Give them the good news in that way. Or, or maybe there's a person who, who you want to reach out to and get to know them more. Maybe you invite them to your house. You show hospitality to them and you give them a meal. You love them in that way. Afterwards, ask, how can I pray for you? What's God doing in your life? Maybe you're in the community and you're, there's a waitress and she comes and she serves you and you ask her, how can I pray for you? And then you give her a 20% tip. In other words, you don't just leave a dollar. You say, I'm going to show good and love to you. And here's the last one. How about you volunteer at the Community Pregnancy Center? We're going to have Melissa come up in just a moment and she's going to talk about that. And really, I want us to consider how God would encourage us, would move us to minister to these ladies and yes, even some of the men and how we can be a blessing to this community. How we can minister with good deeds and the good news. Would you bow with me in prayer?